Hello, and welcome to another episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Since 2020, we've been gathering, laughing, learning hard truths, and sharing in community conversations with Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Each episode, we learn something new, and we're excited to be sharing this journey with you. Roots and Hoots is about connecting with and celebrating Indigenous people's contributions to their fields of study, work, and cultures. We also speak with allies who share how they are furthering the work of reconciliation in Canada. To learn more about the Legacy of Hope Foundation and the work that we do, please visit legacyofhope.ca. In this episode of Roots and Hoots, host Gordon Spence sits down with guests from the Indigenous Arts Centre. Eric Barant is an archivist of mixed Anishinaabe and settler ancestry, and Garrison Garrow is the manager of programs and collections, as well as a Ganyagahaga artist from Akwesasne. Garrison and Eric speak with Gordon about the history of the Indigenous Arts Centre. The Indigenous Arts Centre is within the Department of Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada, and it was created in 1965. The Indigenous Arts Centre holds one of the largest and most important collections of contemporary Indigenous art. They share about some of the current exhibitions, the importance of public access to art, and the Indigenous Arts Centre's acquisition process. For Indigenous artists who may be listening, it is likely that the next open call for submissions will be in early 2024. It's also important to note that artists retain the copyright of their artwork and the decision of which pieces will be acquired lies in the hands of an Indigenous-led jury. What comes through in this conversation is the connection that art has to culture, the way art transcends words, and how the Indigenous Arts Centre is rebuilding trust and repairing relations within the Government of Canada. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guests are Eric Barant and Garrison Garrow. Both are employed by the Indigenous Arts Centre based here in Ottawa. Maybe we can start, guys, by talking a little bit about your your background, where you're from, uh, and your cultural affiliation. Go ahead, maybe, Eric, you want to start? Sure. Uh, my name's Eric Barant. Um, I'm born in Ottawa, Ontario, and I'm of uh, mixed settler and uh, Algonquin ancestry. Um, my father's family is from uh, Pickwaknagon, um, outside Renfrew, um, and uh, I have a background in history. I went to McMaster University and, yeah. and have some degrees in history from there. And somehow I've made my way into the uh, the arts world, which is amazing. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been uh, an interesting journey for me. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's something that I've you know my father was always interested in art and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I've come to it. Do you have any like brothers and sisters? I do. I have one brother. Yeah. Yeah. He lives in Toronto. He's actually, he's a professional musician. Oh. So we're, we're both in arts. Cool. Yeah. He's in the, maybe the, uh, the cooler arts, but yeah. uh, we're both in arts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was in the, uh, Big Wakanagan, uh, a few times now, uh, at the annual power you have there every year. Yeah. I missed the, the powwow this year and usually it's, you know, a thing where, you know, maybe a couple of us will go, it seemed like almost all my family went this year and I didn't. Um, but I was up there recently, actually, uh, kind of sadly for a funeral, but it was, uh, it was actually really nice because I got to meet some cousins and, um, aunts and people that, you know, when we go up there for any given visit, 
they're rarely there. They're working or they're they're elsewhere. So it was bittersweet, but it was really nice to be up there last time I was visiting. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. How about you, Garrison? Uh, what can you tell us about your your background, your family background, where you come from? So I'm from Akwesasne, which is the other direction from Eric. So you go south of Ottawa and you get to Akwesasne. Um, both my parents are from Akwesasne. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was born in Rochester, so from Buffalo, but. That's his home. Uh, my mother, she was born and raised there. Um, yeah. I was born in Cornwall, Ontario, which is just across the river on the Canadian side. Uh, it's got a border running through the middle of it. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Akwesasne, but so I was born over there. And then I grew up mostly in Messina, New York, which is upriver on the New York side, right. um, the other side of Akwesasne. Yeah. And then later on, we moved out to New Brunswick. So my elementary high school years were divided between Messina, New York, and then Fredericton, New Brunswick, or Moncton, New Brunswick, and then finally Sackton, New Brunswick. Whoa, and then okay. eventually I found my way back here in, yeah, in this yeah. direction. I'm kind of interested in uh, hearing a little bit more about your community, Akwesasne. It's a Mohawk community. And uh, is this the community that borders on the United States and yep. Canada? Yep. Quebec and, and Ontario? Yep. Quebec, Ontario, New York State. How do you how do you manage to <laughs> work around all those jurisdictions? It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. It's um, like just for instance, going down to visit relatives. Yeah, you have to go through the border every time, um, no matter where you're going to within the community. You have to inform armed guards where you're going to, what you have with you, just to go visit your aunt or something like that. Really? Yeah. Um, but see, that's just me traveling back and forth from Ottawa. Like people who work there, they may have to go across the border multiple times in the bay, yeah. depending upon where they are working within the community mm -hmm. because of the way it's divided up there. So it definitely makes things difficult. Um, definitely not our choice, really? but it's just something yeah. we've had to deal with all yeah. this time. It was back a long time. Oh, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So on your reserve, do you have like, uh, I heard you had two chief of councils. Yeah, you have the you have the Canadian side, which is the um, Mohawk Council of Alcazaste. And then on the U.S. side, you have the St. Regis Tribal Council. But you also have the Mohawk Mason Council of Chiefs, which is the traditional traditional governance system yeah, along yeah. us. So that's still there. It's always been there you know, for the past thousand years or so. They're just not recognized by the U.S. or Canadian governments as the authority figure. They would rather deal with those that they had put in place. So all three of them work together in some yeah. way. Um, yeah. Not easy, but yeah, they get it done. So the reserve itself is kind of like uh, half of it's on the American side? Yeah. And half of it's, on, it's like, so do you have, it's, I guess it's not a closed border, right? It's got an open... Yeah, you have the one main... Um, border um so if you're coming down from cornwall you would go on to cornwall island and then so the canadian border station is on cornwall itself then when you go to cornwall island you end up on the new york side where the u.s customs um, um yeah. whatever you would call it is there yeah but then there's other parts of the community that well there's no other access to these parts of the community except going through new york state so there's this invisible line that runs through the community that you either acknowledge or don't acknowledge. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a friend who uh, who who lived in Quebec, uh, up in that area, mm -hmm. uh, probably closer to Montreal, who, who owned a farm, right? And uh, his his farmland actually, you know, if you walk back into his farmland, literally walk mm -hmm. into the states. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting, you know. 
Uh, Eric, uh, growing up as a child, uh, were you taught any of your traditional language or culture? Not really. I think it's, you know, I talk to Garrison about this all the time, um, about how, you know, there there was no knowledge of uh, any Algonquin language in my family, as far as I know. Um, you know, my, my great-grandmother was somebody who was very well-respected and uh, well-known in the community, but I don't think that she um, had any of those kind of more, I don't know, traditional sources of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it weighs on me a bit because I am really interested in, um, I'm always learning more about, you know, my culture and other indigenous cultures in Canada. And it is not something that I came preloaded with. Right. So I don't yeah. have a lot of preconceptions, which is good, I guess. But it also means that sometimes I, I feel a little clueless. I ask questions and yeah. I feel like sometimes I should know. Well, there's a lot of people you shouldn't because there's a lot of people in, this, in the same boat as you. And uh, and I know that <clears throat> we worked on the language program last couple of years ago, last year, um, where we found out that I found out that a lot of people, you know, don't have no clue about their culture or their language. And I know that Tiwaganagan, uh, is a community that's almost lost their language totally, the whole community, mm-hmm. and now they're kind of working on bringing the language back. And other communities are doing the same thing across Canada. So yeah, yeah. I we were recently at the uh, Indigenous um, History and Heritage Gathering. Um, I believe that's what the acronym stood for. Um, and uh, there was a great uh, talk given by um, uh, I think it was Quill Commanda. I think. Quill's last name was Commanda. She's a young person. Um, I think she's just leaving high school maybe now. And she speaks, you know, um, fluent Algonquin. um, And she's from Kittigan ZB. And, uh, you know, I had a really um, emotional talk with her after. I mean, she was emotional. I was very emotional, kind of, you know, asking questions about, you know, and she had learned it, you know, from her family and her community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was asking her, is it too late for me to learn these things? And, uh, you know, I think both Quill and Garrison gave me good advice, which is that, you know, that knowledge is probably there, you know, in your community um, and that, you know, you just have to take the time to go and, and find it and ask for help. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my great aunt, um, Claire, who lives in the uh, the Elders residence at uh, Pickwacknoggin is the only person I know of from the community still, like personally, who yeah. speaks um, the language. But, uh, you know, there's probably other sources for me to go out and get it but it's uh it's intimidating you yeah. know and especially being somebody who is very very white passing and looks yeah. looks like something sometimes i feel nervous entering those spaces yeah. where there's learning um happening like that because i worry that you know maybe i i i'm not making people comfortable so i i sometimes struggle with that mm-hmm. kind of uh self-doubt when it comes to those yeah. sort of things you know well like i said you're not alone there's a lot of people like that even indigenous people even people that are like that look indigenous, you know, I have cousins who uh, <clears throat> who can't speak uh, Cree, and and uh, but there's all there's a there's a group of people that that kind of grew up around the language, the culture, uh, and can have an understanding of it, but they can't seem to speak it. It's in there, and uh, uh, they're called silent speakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a term that I didn't I, I didn't create this word. It's a term that came out of uh, a project that we work on, an indigenous language 
uh, Voices from the Land project. So, uh, and there's a you know a number of people that are fall into that category. So, mm. what about you, Garrison? Uh, uh, did you grow up with you know learning about your culture and your language at all? It'd be similar to Eric's, and as you were talking about the, yeah. the silent speakers. So, like, yeah, there is that generation of of, of people who their parents would have spoken the language and it probably went in our household all the time. But then at some point in time, they they stopped. And so that's how my mother's situation is. She can understand the language, but she she didn't she doesn't speak it. Um my father, well he grew up in Buffalo. Um, yeah. his father didn't speak the language at that point in time. His mother did of course was very fluent. So Buffalo. he didn't have in yeah in Buffalo, New York. New York, yeah, yeah. So he didn't have the language with him on a on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So yeah, with the two of them, I mean, he always heard the language at my grandparents, um, both my grandparents on my mother's side, um, fluent speakers. Um, my grandma on my dad's side was uh, she spoke the language, but so I would hear it, familiar with it. But again, same situation as Eric. You know, I don't know all yeah. of it. I know words here and there, and there's also that that sense of loss that you feel and, and disconnect because yeah. the language is so important and it carries so much of the culture. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a similar situation. Um, it was just that generation that you know they didn't they had been through so much traumas, and I'm sure that the idea of passing along the language to their kids was like, why would you inflict more trauma upon your kids? Yeah, but now of course we've got a lot more revitalization happening in the language right. coming back, which is yeah. it's just a wonderful thing. But I just wish it happened earlier when you know your brain is able to um, to pick up a language a lot easier. Because definitely when you start to do it now at this yeah. age, it's it's oh, not easy. You should see me trying to learn French now, and that's, and, and that's something I've learned yes. my entire life, and yeah. I'm still struggling with it. So part of it's also intimidating to be like I'm going to learn a language that is completely contrary to any of the settler languages I've come kind of pre-programmed with by my society and education system. You know, I was saying I met kind of one of my Algonquin language heroes actually at the Art Center, which is the artist Jay Ojik, uh, who um, came in for a tour. And when I used to follow him on Twitter, he'd, he used to do an Algonquin word of the day. Okay. And he would tweet it out and he would have kind of a description of it. Sometimes he'd have like, you know, um, a graphic to kind of relate the word to, you know, what it was. Yeah. And I actually found that really useful for a while. I was writing them down and like, you know, keeping a uh, track of them. But uh, I left Twitter a while ago. It wasn't very good for my mental health. No. So I joked with Jay. I was like, I'm missing out on my like little language lesson every day. Mm -hmm. And so I got to reconnect with them some other way. But, yeah. uh, you know, I try to get a little bit when I can. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the work that you do, both of you, Eric and, uh, and Garrison. Maybe uh, Eric, tell us a little bit about your job and what you do. Right, so I am the archivist with the Indigenous Art Center. So in my work with the 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 Art Center is basically it's it's a couple different components, but I guess the most popularly known one is that it's it's an art collection. There is um, uh, it's a large collection of contemporary Indigenous art. I believe one of the largest in Canada, um, and uh, made up of hundreds and hundreds of artworks. Um, and they've they've been collected dating from I think the 60s there might even be some dating from the 50s um, and uh, that collection has grown over the years and it's had many different forms and my job as the archivist is to sort of um, uh, keep and organize and make accessible all of the information that relates to the art in the collection okay so for our purposes a lot of that is um, 
we have artist files. So for every one of the artists that is in our collection, who has artworks in our collection, there is information relating to their career, their lives, um, their practice that we keep in a separate area mm -hmm. from the artwork that um, we keep as sort of a repository of information. So if researchers want to come in and say, I'm doing a show about the artworks of Alex Janvier, you know, instead of um, going online and Googling for hours and hours, all these various tidbits, they can come in to the art center or we can give it to them remotely materials that they can research about people who are related to the collection. Okay. Um, and there's other things too there. We keep an extensive library of just uh, books related to indigenous art, indigenous ways of life, mm -hmm. lots of different subjects. Um, we have a large library of exhibition catalogs. So where uh, indigenous artwork has been on display or had a, an art show about it, we keep a record of that. Um, right. And we keep things related to, yeah, artists, um, programs that we have run at different times mm -hmm. um, and uh, different parts of the collection that are no longer with us. So we have some information relating to um, Inuit art that we no longer um, are curators or, or uh, caretakers of. So it's a, it's a really great resource. I mean, there are other people on our team who could probably speak way more eloquently about the, the artwork side of the collection, though I have yeah. some experience with it. But I'm also really, um, I'm a huge fan and, and uh, kind of in awe sometimes of the uh, great amount of information we have relating to the art itself. So you have this uh, great collection of Indigenous art. Besides it sitting there, like, uh, I mean, I, I guess you don't have it all on display. Uh, can people borrow this art uh, for display in, in events that are, that are happening? Yeah. So, I, I, again, I wish that uh, my colleague uh, Kevin and, uh, and Ken were here because they are the kind of the experts in the loan process. But the artwork is not regularly on display um, within like a, a, a gallery space that we control yeah we do have a gallery space unfortunately it has been um uh, not used since the pandemic um we we have you know plans i think in future to reactivate that space mm -hmm. um and and have some shows on but it's not imminent um but yes we do the main way the collection um is seen and and used is that it uh, artworks from our collection are requested from other um institutions so, you know, the uh, Winnipeg Art Gallery or the National Gallery mm -hmm. or um, the, the McMichael Gallery, various galleries or, or museums across Canada yeah. um, request our works and then they come out from our uh, vault space or from uh, our partners uh, who we store things with and they go on display and they live and are seen, um, but uh, they're, they're usually... Um, out of sight until requested mm -hmm. at this point right okay. now. Okay, so yeah. they're kept in a in a uh, an environment that's you know that's temperature controlled yeah. and yeah, it's temperature controlled, humidity controlled, light controlled, and it also we um, practice um, uh, culturally appropriate care yeah. for our mm -hmm. artworks because we do have objects that um, I guess are, are considered living. Um, or have special needs mm -hmm. uh, according to either the artist's you know request or according to kind of cultural standards of, of care um, and 
I think Garrison could probably speak more to that aspect, but they are cared for um, on both a physical and a, a spiritual and cultural level as well. Okay. Uh, Garrison, you want to tell us a little bit what uh, what you do at the uh, Art Center, Indigenous Art Center? I do a little bit of everything. Um, so I was brought over as the Program and Collections Manager a few years back. Um, now I'm currently the acting director while our, our director's on leave. So yeah, I get a little bit of everything because I'm kind of in the middle. So we have our, um, Erica's talking about the registration. So at the art registrar and the archive side, then you also have the collection side and the coordination of the collection. So if anything is lent to another institution, like you would go through the art registrar, they identify the works. Yes, it's available. Uh, and then we go over the coordination to the, the actual shipping and sending out of the artwork and then sending it back. So there's a lot of work that's always going. There's always art moving around yeah. either the country or even internationally. Yeah. So I'm kind of involved in the middle of that, um, being aware of what's happening on both sides and then as well as working with senior management because the art center itself, it's kind of its own separate bubble within the department. It's kind of a strange situation that it Where is, is within. Located? Uh, it's in within CERNET. So before we used to be right in 10 Wellington, so headquarters, I mean, Gatineau, we were right in the, in the building there. Should, um, we, should we should clarify for the listeners? Because we, we're in the government <laughs> bubble too. Well. <laughs> so CERNAC is Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada, right? which is one half of the former yeah. Indian, Indian Affairs yeah. Department. So it's Indian Affairs. Which yeah, is, okay. which is <laughs> now... That Split, makes it clear. You yeah. Know, so, yeah. yeah. And it's we, always changing. The name's always changing, right? But it always is yeah. Indian Affairs. <laughs> it's all, yeah. always known as Indian Affairs. Yeah. 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 yeah I usually always say Indian Affairs. Yeah. So well, you get it right away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to use our actual yeah, name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I do a little bit of everything and involved with, with a lot of different aspects. Um, and then questions that come in from the general public or within the department. Um, there's a lot of activity that's always happening. Yeah in that place uh if i was like uh in this community i'm the chief and uh we build a new band hall or or band band office would i be able to like would we be able to borrow some paintings or art from from the center to for a period of time or what's the criteria for doing that kind of stuff kind of and kind of yes and no um yeah. so because yeah the the collection that we have i mean it's a lot of incredibly well-known and recognized indigenous artists and these are the original works so the works are can be some pretty high values right um so yeah there's a certain amount of care that's required for these 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 are works that they they are displayed in a place that would have similar um, humidity control right. light control as well yeah so generally it would be going to a place for for an exhibition uh, in a place that would have that type of facility and also mm -hmm. is, is secure and sealed. Um, right. So not usually would go to a band office because they generally open to the public. So there's a lot more risk to be involved with. Yeah, security and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and just potentially damage to the yeah, yeah. as well. But what's interesting is that, you know, we, we, we've definitely had to move away from um, decorating um, kind of more public spaces or, or offices or things like that. Mm -hmm. But... There have been instances where I know recently we we've talked about it's an exception, but there was a um, a piece of regalia that had been created um, years ago um, by uh, an artist and craftsperson, and it was recently uh, loaned out to uh, somebody who is like yeah, the descendant the yeah. of the artist, and the regalia was used in a dance and then came came back. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there are times where artwork can go out for use in communities and things, but it tends to be the exception rather than the rule. And also because so many of the artworks, like Garrison says, are they're, they're objects that require a very specific type of environment right. to, to thrive and survive. Um, and it is tough because we, we don't, we don't want to create the perception. And I know that we've, we've had the perception that we are, you know, hoarding artworks or keeping them for, you know, just to, to hide away, away yeah. from people. We do want to share it. And, and of course it's where we think of ourselves as the stewards of the artwork rather mm -hmm. than the, the keepers or the owners but it, we do have to also respect the the health and well-being right. of our It's yeah. preservation yeah. to yeah. ensure that as many people can see these, these artworks, yeah. you know, long down the road. So we would never come out and directly say no to a request like that. Yeah. We would want to work with um, whoever's mm -hmm. coming to us because this is a chance to expose this artist to a greater audience. It's a chance that people may want to purchase their artwork. So we're definitely yeah. going to do what we can to so support any Indigenous artists. So a lot of it is for sale then? Uh, well, some of it. Oh well, I I think um, I think what Garrison may be um saying is that we if if it is a contemporary artist, um, and say that there's an opportunity for the artwork to be shown in uh, an institution, somebody requests it for mm -hmm. for a show, we always want to encourage it being shared and shown because it is an opportunity for that contemporary artist if they are still producing artwork right. to bring attention to their yes. work and career because then they do have an opportunity to say if uh, somebody comes in and says that is a beautiful artwork i'd like to contact that artist yeah. and see if they would produce something for me okay. um so that that's something we kind of try to encourage more is if if you have the ability to support an artist by acquiring their artwork for your own permanent collection pursue that route mm -hmm. if you'd like um you know and we want to promote that by you know giving that artwork that artist's work mm -hmm. as much exposure right. as possible yeah. and as well so if they do go to exhibition then there's usually the other fees involved with that so yeah. we ensure that the artist continues to get exhibition fees right. <clears throat> or right. if the artwork is reproduced in any way we ensure that they get yeah. um, fees for the reproduction so yes. that's that yeah so if we um lend the work somewhere it's to try and ensure that that whole means of then surviving and living as an artist yeah. can be, uh, can be a so there's a fee associated yeah. yeah yeah and it's and it's because um you know we don't actually own the copyright for the artworks in the collection mm -hmm. um we when we acquire an artwork which we'll get into i'm sure later in the interview because it's a big topic when we acquire an artwork we are acquiring you know the 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 object mm -hmm. but ultimately sort of the the um, final say on how that artwork will be used in future we we have rest with the artist so that like an agreement an agreement yeah. exactly so that and as part of our, our acquisition agreement if we acquire an artwork we say you know we will have this artwork and we'll take care of it and we'll we'll we'll, we'll you know own it but when the time comes for it to go for a show mm -hmm. say we're going to check with you and say you know is this going to go out to this institution or somebody wants to reproduce this image in a book mm -hmm. are you good with us reproducing this image in the book and we ensure that they're compensated yeah. for that use of their artwork yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's a heritage trust collection so that okay. really should be the key um, way to describe uh, the program in the yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do you have any exhibits where you take 
a part of your collection and have a show like an exhibit yep yeah like the when the gallery space was there in um 10 wellington in the lobby that's what they would do on a on a regular basis okay. so yeah. you would either um get a curator curator to come in and then they would you know choose a selection of artists okay. to have in the gallery yeah. but then there were other cases in the past where it's um, after an acquisition happened for instance and they wanted to showcase some of those works mm -hmm. so then they would um you know put those pieces up as many as they could within that it's a very small gallery space but yeah as many yeah. as you could within that to showcase it to uh yeah. to everybody small but mighty as i yeah. understand it was really <laughs> and i was in the building before I joined the Indigenous Arts Center, and it was a very popular space to oh, walk yeah. through, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and really a well put together space. And yeah, it, it is a shame that it's kind of sitting fallow right now. But uh, I know when it comes back, it'll be very popular. Yeah. Besides, like uh, besides, like when people talk about art, they talk about a painting or a sketch of some kind with with pencil or or ink. That's what you know people picture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but in your collection, do you have more than, do you have like uh, other stuff besides a painting? Do you have yeah. like any, uh, uh, I don't suppose you have any carvings or anything like that. But Lots. You do? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, okay. we've got a bit of everything. So like when the collection was first, uh, when they first started with the collection back in the 60s, um, they had done some collecting beforehand, not like directly, but... At that point in time, it was a lot of like crafts. Um, so there would be like smaller sculptures, carvings, yeah. uh, mittens, knockers, and things like that. Um, over time, it kind of transitioned less from those items to the more fine arts because the idea of the arts center at that point in time was to ensure that indigenous art is recognized at the same level as other art that is being done around the world. So, yeah, we have more of those. More of those art should be on the same level as the Picasso's and all these other these great artists. So at the time, that was not considered. Um, indigenous art was something that would be relegated to a museum. Um, mm -hmm. It's primitive art. It's uh, it's nice, but yeah, it's, it's not it's not fine art. Yeah. So yeah. the art center played a big role in advocating for that, ensuring that no, our art is art, and it should be recognized yeah. on the same level as every other artist out there in the world. So that's when it kind of shifted to more of those pieces mm -hmm. and less of the uh, the crafts. But of course, sculpture and carving. I mean, yeah, they're they're recognized as fine arts now. Yeah. Um, so I mean, uh, what would be the like um, the the line? uh between art and crafts like that's a very good question yeah I, you know <laughs> you I start? I, you, yeah do i want to start i you know i think that that is something that maybe the indigenous art center is emblematic of that the line is very blurry because we have art that is very much like a craft and we yeah. have maybe there, there are some crafts that are very much like art and yeah. i think the the difference is in the eye of the beholder you know i think for example there's a there's a beautiful artwork i always talk about this artwork because but we have this beautiful seal skin travel neck pillow you know the u-shaped <laughs> yeah. so when you see that you can see it as like a it's a it's a it's an object with utility you know it's it's a travel pillow mm -hmm. it's it's something somebody crafted like you know could you use it i don't know but is it also beautiful artwork, like the way it's been stitched and constructed and the seal skin? When you see it, we had a photographer come in and photograph it, and it almost looks like it's, it has a halo around it. It's glowing right. from the fine fur, right? Yeah. And there are objects like that where there's almost, it's almost, it almost makes me, it makes me smile when I think about it because 
it's it's an it's a crafted object in the way that you know things have been made of seal skin and seal fur for mm -hmm. millennia but here it is being turned into this kind of boring western invention the neck pillow an uninteresting thing <laughs> and it becomes this beautiful art object <laughs> right um but yeah you have to let the the artists play with that idea as yeah. well as what is the craft and what is not and they do do that oh very they much do so test those boundaries and right, yeah, push yeah. and that's it's wonderful to see yeah there's a lot of i mean my wife's Inuit, so uh, i see a lot of Inuit arts and crafts and you know carvings and stuff like that and like for example like the they make these uh Inuit make these uh they're supposed to be like sunglasses but they're made of bone and they just have a oh, fine yeah. line yeah. like hmm. so you can see through it you know yeah uh, uh it's, it's kind of you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. It prevents snow blindness. Yeah, to prevent people from the, you know, you're on the land of so bright in, in, in parts of the spring that you can go snow blind, mm -hmm. right? So to prevent that from happening. But that's kind of an object that I would think that's it's almost uh, an art, you know? I mean, it's an ingenious sure. kind of thing, you know, that they've, that they've uh, they invented, created this amazing piece of, uh, something that's useful you know mm -hmm. uh, but it's also artistic you know uh, mm -hmm. and there's like different baskets baskets Basket as well yeah, yeah yeah that was and a we... very utilitarian thing before you need as a necessity but they become these incredibly ornate and beautiful objects and, and we have lots of and even back then they were probably incredibly yeah, ornate yeah. and beautiful yeah. but they were used but yeah. now we see it differently yeah 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 the Snow Goose Gallery, located at 83 Spark Street, has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples art from across Canada. Here you will find Cape Dorset prints, carved Inuit sculptures, First Nations wood and stone carvings, and more. The Snow Goose Gallery is located right in the heart of downtown at the Spark Street Mall. It's a great place to shop for gifts made by Indigenous artists and to consider when designing your home or office space. Enjoy the serenity and beauty of a Snow Goose Gallery next time you're in the nation's capital. The Snow Goose Gallery is a proud sponsor of the Roots & Hoots podcast, and for more information on their collection, store hours, and contact information, please visit snowgoose.ca. Eric, in your opinion, how can Indigenous art be used as a tool for education? I, well, that's a huge that is a huge question i i think that um art is uh, an incredibly um effective tool for teaching history and um and cultural values because artwork is sort of the expression of deeply held personal and cultural values um and you know we just yesterday we had a great tour of the uh, carlton university um art gallery and um danny printup who was giving us the tour was telling us about just and it was works of norval morso and just looking she looked at the artwork and had studied it and she was telling us about ways in which his art was informed by his personal life by his cultural upbringing by his knowledge of spiritual teachings yeah and i learned so much about the, his his community i guess and which the way he had been brought up his beliefs about spirituality um, uh, beings in in other realms about all these different things in you know 
two hours in an art gallery. I felt like I'd learned so much. And I think our art collection with the huge, huge breadth of um, artist experience, the the different cultures and regions of the the country that we have in the collection, there's so much to be learned. Mm -hmm. And there are some artworks in our collection that are really um, challenging and sometimes very painful to experience because yeah. you can really feel and see the pain yeah. that the the artist has experienced wow. and that they're expressing through their artwork. Yeah. And there's so much to learn from that yeah. because I think, you know, for better or worse, I think sometimes the, the most popular indigenous art in Canada that we see in, you know, a textbook that a kid receives in our country or that you may see at the gallery in the mm -hmm. National Gallery in a big show. Sometimes it is not the most challenging mm -hmm. because the challenging stuff is not always fun to to look at immediately yeah. Yeah. or to think deeply about. Yeah. And I think our collection represents so many different experiences that to to interact with it and to go see a show in which it's featured, there's so much that you can learn about individual artists, but also, mm -hmm. like I say, communities, entire cultures, yeah. even, you know, periods of time in which artworks are produced, right. you know, yeah. they, there are lessons that come out of those. So I think, I think the indigenous art collection is like just an incredible tool to, mm -hmm. to learn about cultures outside of your own. And I think, Garrison, one of your goals before you've become the acting director and that sort of thing was to be an education and outreach officer because our collection, I think, is finding ways to become more publicly known yep. so that people can learn from it. Because the way that it is loaned out and shared, mm -hmm. we don't always have an active gallery space. Yeah. So we want to have other ways in which people can see the artwork, mm -hmm. learn about the artists who created them, learn about their communities. Um, learn about the context in which they were created without necessarily having to go to a gallery. Right. So that's one of our kind of future kind of goals, I think, is to find ways to make our collection more accessible. Yeah. Um, because I think that there's a lot of untapped potential. And every time we have a group come through and see it, people are astonished. Mm -hmm. Like, literally, I see jaws drop. Um, so, you know, we, we do have um, researchers come in to look at our collection and even, you know, the most seasoned academics, when they interact with our artworks, I can see them learning new things. They see a new aspect to the artwork yeah. as they're looking at it. And when they're in our archives and they're reading, they, I never knew that. Yeah. Somebody who has been researching an artist for a year will say, this is something I never knew before. Yeah. Yeah. So I think our artwork is really a um, powerful uh, tool to, to learn and discover new things could somebody like could could like if i was a teacher and i wanted to take my kids on a, my students on a field trip could that be possible would you do anything like that i mean we we have done that with now it depends on what level of school you're talking about we've had um we have had college classes come through and university classes come through yeah i don't know if we've had anybody younger than that um uh, come through as a cohort to see but we definitely, you know, we invite people to just let us know in what way, if you want to see the collection mm -hmm. or if you have a specific goal in mind, yeah. we invite everyone to do it, not yeah. just academics. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we have 
family members of an artist um, and they may have just found out that they were related to right. an indigenous artist yeah. they say i i had no idea that my great uncle painted these beautiful scenes can i you know can i see the, some of his artwork or can i learn more about it can you share images with me yeah. and we always make the greatest possible effort to accommodate those beyond just artistic institutions like an art gallery or an academic institution we want to make sure that the collection is available and at the the most accessible mm -hmm. to to everyone who wants yeah. to see it yeah and i think that's been a barrier in the past because you know the the i say you know <laughs> the uh the perception i think of accessing fine art is that it is for people who are specialized in fine art yeah but i don't think that's true right. i think that art is for everybody and art is for art is for people in the community and culture and with an affinity for it to to use and to discover yeah. and to learn from so i think that's one of the things that the art center is really trying to work on is expanding yeah our our accessibility and openness for everybody right like art is a way to convey ideas that you may not be able to express in other ways you may not be able to say it you may not be able to write it down mm -hmm. but you can probably create some work that's going to get those messages out there which i think is quite you know fascinating about the art center is that when this was formed in the 60s and 70s and they're purchasing this these incredible works from indigenous artists and the artists are exploring different themes and yeah. issues and you know just things they're dealing with or want to express and they're putting it into the artwork and then indian affairs was buying that and putting it up on their walls yeah so yeah. they may have messages in there that are not that you know they don't know <laughs> yeah like they're conveying something here but people are walking by it and looking at it and appreciating it they may not be seeing those messages yeah. but they're seeing something here right. but you never know on a subconscious level they're picking yeah. up on these things you know yeah. uh, like for instance i had done this artwork or this um pin i was working on this project called nani love it it was for all the inuit who had gone down south for tuberculosis treatment and then just right. never came back so i was asked to design a pin that would be given to the survivors when they were doing the apology so I had to do, I, luckily I had done so much research working on that project for like the three years previous to that. So when they asked me to do this design, I was able to, you know, put something together fairly quick because it was still fresh in my mind. So I just started drawing different things and putting it out there and eventually came up with a design that I was pleased with that I thought represented, you know, their experience in as much as, as much as I could in this small design. Um, so after the event happened and it was given to all of the, uh, all of the, um, Inuit who had gone through that experience once who had made it back. Um, there was this one gentleman who had asked to to speak with me. He's kind of very well known, you know, as involved with none of it and none of yeah. the politics. I can't think of his name right now, but I know when I see him. Um, but yeah, I said, oh, of course. Well, I would love to talk mm -hmm. to him. So he comes over to me and he starts telling me a story about um, when he was down in the hospitals. Um, he was there for quite some time, just him as a little kid, you know, in a hospital by himself. There were some other Indian around, um, but there's different language issues. There's just, just being away from your community, your family, and everybody you know. Mm -hmm. So he was quite sad and, 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 and missing everything. So eventually, you know, he had sent some letters back home and his family had sent him down a piece of whale blubber, a piece of whale meat. 
And he said he looked at that and it just brought him so much joy to see this thing that he recognized and knew yeah. and food that he knew because they didn't know that hospital food. Mm -hmm. This was not their culture. Mm -hmm. And he said he just looked at it for the longest time and was just so happy. So when he saw my design, because I had these different like layers, he said that's what he saw. Mm -hmm. He saw the different whales of the whale meat. So that's not something that I intended to put into this design, right. but it's just something that came out from right. the research I was doing. Because for me, when I'm doing artwork that I really, really enjoy and appreciate and think that's good artwork, I don't think it's coming from me. I think it's flowing through me. Yeah. I kind of read and research as much as I can. And then eventually there comes a point where I just, okay, now it's got to come out. Yeah, yeah. So what comes out, um, the best artwork I do is one where I have no idea how much time has passed. I don't yeah. know what I'm drawing. I'm just yeah. sitting there doing something. And eventually it's like, oh my God, I'm in so much pain. My knees are locked up. <laughs> my hands are sore. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and then I'm done. Then I look See back, come back and say, okay, yeah. so yeah. this is something, this is, this is good. Yeah. Because it's less me involved and more something flowing through me. So I oh, think wow. with that design, that that's kind of what happened. That was, yeah. I was just kind of being guided with what I was reading and learning. So you created a hint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why don't you display some of your stuff in these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, closet photos are very tight. Okay, so. you're going to get to the question about the acquisition. Okay. I'll answer that. I'll answer yeah. at that yeah. point in time. All right, well, let's get to that. I think uh, we touched a little bit about that, uh, about your acquisition program of Indigenous Arts. Why is it important for Indigenous artists to, to consider this? So our our acquisition process um, is, I, I believe, unique and um, and has been this way for a couple decades now. Which is that the the art acquisition process is a juried acquisition process. So what that means is that instead of you know a group of bureaucrats you know sitting around saying that artwork looks nice, mm -hmm. that artwork looks nice, what the Indigenous Art Center does is we convene a jury that is made up of indigenous curators artists um people surrounding the art community um you know people who are knowledgeable in the the field of kind of contemporary indigenous art mm -hmm. and we accept submissions and we put out a call um and we try to cast a very wide net mm -hmm. you know we, we put up posts on our website we i've started using facebook to um promote the the art acquisition and recently, one of my kind of projects has been looking into the use of radio to reach more northern um, and remote communities yeah. um, to put out the call. Once those artists, and they can be artists that are emerging artists, established artists, famous artists, but we accept all of those applications yeah. for the process. And once those are received, the, uh, the jury gets together and reviews the artworks that have been submitted. And it's amazing to watch. I've only been part of one of them. Yeah. I, I joined during I joined the Indigenous Art Center during the pandemic. So it was the first ever remote jury process. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that was difficult. We had people uh, from Vancouver, yeah. you know, all the way, you know, to Quebec um, and trying to, you know, convene everyone together and review artworks in a remote sense. Right. You know, we had an image on the screen before we used to do it. You know, people would do it in person. Yeah. You know, we'd have the artworks come in and you could be hands on, you know, with the right. artworks, not literally because that could be quite bad, but, you know, visually in front yeah. of you. And it was the most incredible process to watch because I learned so much about both the jury and the artists who were submitting and their work. 
they were noticing things that I couldn't have possibly imagined about their artwork, yeah. techniques they'd used, or or art they seemed influenced by, or it was incredible. So they're talking about uh, they're 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 looking at art by other artists, right? That's right. And they're finding things within that. Yeah, and they're saying, oh, the, well, this is really interesting. You know, this is a young artist, and you know that one of the artworks, I it sticks out in my mind. Maybe maybe I like objects that have been you know kind of changed in their purpose through art but there was a, uh, a skateboard deck like the wooden part of the skateboard that had been kind of beaded yeah and it was amazing like they had beaded a pattern on the board because skateboard oh. decks are often um, painted yeah. or like drawn on yeah and they had like done a beaded skateboard and they had like i believe they had wrapped it in uh like uh, some pelt or leather yeah. and they had beaded onto it and it was from a very young artist like an artist who was still a student yeah and it was so cool that they were reviewing it saying, wow, this is a really interesting piece of work, you know, well, you know, and talking about it. And it was from this artist who was just getting started in their career. Yeah. And they had this opportunity to be considered and discussed. And of course, they weren't there to witness it, that artist. But um, and I don't believe it was ultimately selected for incorporation of the collection. Mm -hmm. But they get a letter that says this was reviewed and like, thank you so much. You should apply next time. And if you are selected, wonderful opportunity to have your name out there. Um, you can, you know, put it on your resume. You know, it's in the Indigenous Art Collection. So what happens to the art once it's selected? So once it's selected and we we drop a uh, an agreement um, and uh, the artist sets the price, um, you know, we don't we do not do a lot of haggling or anything no with the artist, right? Yeah. No haggling. Like, you Maybe know, increase the increase price. The price you know, because sometimes artists undervalue, right. especially Plus. a young artist, right? They'll say, I'm offering this. And we go, well, that's far too little for the work yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Um, so we draw up an agreement and we say, you know, we'd like to purchase your artwork and bring it into the collection. Mm -hmm. And then that can be a very interesting process too, because sometimes this artwork is coming from areas that are not easily accessible by fine art shippers because with these artworks it's not easy to just throw it in a box and give it to fedex right you know this is a very delicate, yeah. very delicate or have very specific conditions for being transported right so it can take a long time for an artwork to make its way to us because yeah. we have to arrange the logistics for that right. um but the jury you know comes together and makes that choice and i think that's one of the key parts of the juried acquisition process is that this is not a settler-led process. Mm -hmm. There is not a colonial mindset being used when acquiring these artworks. It's not about the greatest capital advantage to the government. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. oh well, this is this artwork will be worth millions and yeah. not a consideration. Yeah. It's about an important stage in the artist's career. Does it represent, like you know, a a, a, perfect, a good example of this aesthetic style? You know, is it? Um, and we try to get a broad range of. Um, geographical and cultural representation so you know we don't we realize you know oh my god metis artists are really underrepresented yeah you know in this this acquisition mm -hmm. cycle is there something important about this artwork that's being said mm -hmm. about you know metis culture and things so there's a lot of considerations and of course you know i'm only sitting there taking notes as fast as i can because the jury are the ones doing the deliberating yeah. and deciding how many uh, like how many pieces of art do you the jury look at or how many do you acquire in a year? Well, that that varies pretty wild, uh, widely. Um, it depends on you know what we've been budgeted for, um, and it depends. Sometimes some acquisition cycles, as I understand it, will get a couple more you know expensive items you know that have a larger price tag. So 
we acquire fewer artworks overall, but we've acquired right. some other ones. Now the last acquisition cycle, I'm sure I'm sure Rachel will be mad at me because I didn't I don't know this number exactly, but I would say like uh, uh, hundreds. Um, and we receive application for hundreds uh, and hundreds probably um, because, you know, we may receive, say, you know, 200 applications from artists, yeah. but they submit multiple artworks as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So th then the jury will go through and, you know, mm -hmm. review the package and the, the, the field gets narrower and narrower. Yeah. And what's great about it too, is that the artists provide artist statements. So they you know like we we're talking about that opportunity to learn you know we can look at the one picture of the artwork mm -hmm. it's a beautiful sculpture say but then when the artist describes their intent behind it and the message that mm -hmm. is being conveyed by it or what it means to them it can transform the meaning of the object bigger more value i don't know if it gives it more value but it's really interesting to hear the jury talk about yeah. an artwork when they understand the context of it more yeah um because sometimes when we see an object in the national gallery you know it, it's just up on the wall yeah. and there might be a little plaque describing it but sometimes the artist statement for things we get are quite extensive yeah and it's really interesting to read those and see yeah, those yeah. so but yeah hundreds of artworks and the jury goes through them all uh very deliberately and it, the field gets narrower and narrower and eventually you know the there are an excellent group that are selected we did our first remote one this past in uh, uh acquisition cycle who knows if it will remain remote in future we may start doing it in person again which is a another thing altogether but uh mm -hmm. i haven't experienced that yeah but it's it's interesting because we we have many many artists have close contact with the art center just by the nature of the small art community in canada and then just even areas of Canada, specific areas. So there are reasons that sometimes an artist like Garrison, for example, and there's issues with reputation. Um, and we've struggled with that yeah. in the past. Really? Yeah. Well, I think Garrison, Garrison would be the perfect person to talk about this. So I'll lead you into my experience with the art center. Okay. So I was always kind of aware of the acquisition program yeah. um, because you know my family worked with the government. My brothers were in Ottawa. They always saw that call out and um, encouraged me to to do it. So finally, I did it around 2000, 2001. I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll try. I'm going to submit some pieces." So I sent them off and um, kind of forgot about it. But then, yeah, the letter came back saying that they wanted to acquire a photograph that I did. And I looked at it. I thought, "Oh, wonderful! This is great. My work is going to be purchased. It's appreciated." Then I'm looking at it and I see the letterhead with um, Indian Affairs, and I'm like. Do I want them having my artwork? <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. I got to think about this now. So I thought about it and eventually I was like, no, they're not going to, I don't know what they're going to do with my artwork. I don't know where they're going to put it. They could be putting it up some plastered uh, on walls. They could have some other messages in there. Not going to happen. No way. Yeah. So I just put that letter aside and, and walked away and forgot all about it. Yeah. So then, yes, years later, I find myself now working for the Indigenous Arts Center, knowing about the acquisition program everything that Eric described and thought, oh yeah, that probably would have been a good thing for me to do back then. <laughs> because there's a good chance that I would be working as a full-time artist now. It would not have to be 
working for the department <laughs> as yeah, a program yeah, director. Yeah. Manager. I'd be a full-time artist. I'd be creating work all the time. You never know. But then who knows what path I would have chosen. But, right. but that was my experience because I saw it um, attached to the department. I right. saw it attached to Indian Affairs. And I couldn't make that distinction at that time, yeah. or at least at that age, because that was, what, mid-20s, so, you know, a little bit more rebellious and, and things like that. But now I know how, how important this collection is and the acquisition program. Um, like we do have a split between the emerging artists versus those established artists. So there's always mm-hmm. there's always the desire to encourage um, emerging artists and, and, and purchase their work so that they can start their careers. Um, right. It also means you do have to make that tough decision when you do have an established artist and they submit a work which you know is incredible but we may already have pieces like that within the collection right. or a similar piece in that style. So that's left to the jury to decide. So mm-hmm. there are like incredible pieces that don't make the collection yeah. just for that reason is that we have some already there or else you do want to encourage more um, emerging artists to come along. So like, okay, I would want to bring this person into the collection because now they're part of this community. They can do their work and they can get themselves established where this established artist is is kind of doing well i have lots of exhibitions so they may need less focus and less attention right because we do have a limited budget so we have to try and figure out where that that money is going to go to and, mm-hmm. and how we can advocate for indigenous art in general so yeah. it's got to be spread in the decision that we made but but thankfully that's left with the jury to decide and not us because yeah, yeah that would be a very difficult thing to do mm-hmm. uh speaking of young artists that are emerging uh i want you to Give us some information, or can you, uh, the opportunity to put a plug in here for uh, emerging Indigenous artists, where would they contact, or who would they contact? Because, you know, we might have some young artists listening to this podcast and, you know, kind of on the verge of, you know, what should I do in my life? Should I go this way, or should I do it? Should I pursue art? And where would they, you know, if they if they were interested in this, this acquisition program, where would they, who would they call, or where would they go? Well, we do have um, we do have a web page on the CERNIC, um, the main website. So if you if you have access to the internet or Google or anything, just type in Indigenous Arts Center CERNIC. It should lead you right to our page. Mm-hmm. Um, we do we we have a generic phone number that I think is not in service I anymore. wouldn't recommend that. One. I would not recommend the phone number, but what yeah. I would recommend is our um, our generic email. Right. If I'm going to say, I believe it's art. A R T at R C A A N C dash C I R N A C dot G C dot C A. So this is the joy <laughs> we of have to use communication. So so that's why I encourage people just to um, Google the website um, yeah. and you will find a link to the email. You'll find information about the Indigenous Arts Center. Um, and you know, I don't think that we have um, an acquisition cycle immediately planned for certain dates. Not till next year, Not till next year most yeah. likely. Um, but preemptively get in touch with us. Yeah. Ask any questions that you want. And, you know, uh, keep your eyes open on our website. And if you email us proactively and say, I'd love to know when the next acquisition cycle happens, we'll definitely keep that in mind. And we have a a mailing list that we uh, that we use when that information goes out so yeah. we can add the any artist who's interested to that mailing list yeah um and you purchase the art right we do purchase yeah. the art. money will go into the artist's pockets okay um and of course the copyright will remain with artists so if you have an artwork that is 
you know, possibly selected mm -hmm. the process, if that's used in a book or if it's used in a documentary or if it's used, if it's on an exhibition, you know, your, your artwork is going to be on display internationally, you'll yep. get a fee. Um, so it's, it's not only a wonderful opportunity for your career and for your artwork to have a larger audience. It's also a financially rewarding process. Yep. And I think that is the concern I think some people have is that, and I talked, we talked about reputation of the department and things. I think that you know, there is historically some justified distrust mm -hmm. of, of these institutions. Yeah. Um, so we try to battle against that by always being as upfront and, uh, and fair and, uh, and transparent as we can be with any process related to uh, art acquisition or the use of your art. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, got just a couple more questions for you guys, uh, Garrison. Um, do you have any like uh, kind of two questions here? The first part is, do you have any of your art go outside the country? And also, the second part is, do you have any exhibitions coming up on Indigenous art? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we recently had um, uh, organized um, exhibition in Brazil. Um, so a number wow. of pieces went down from the art center down there. Uh, the year before, some artwork went to Taiwan, and they had an exchange, a collaboration with their indigenous people in Taiwan versus the um, indigenous people in Canada. So that was quite an exciting one. But yeah, yeah there's always there's always some moving around. Um, the U.S. is you know another big market because there's very definitely a close link. A lot of the nations you know are across that border back and forth. But yeah, there's always something on the go. Um, so right now we have a number of exhibitions. We have pieces at Rideau Hall, the Governor General. Yeah. So they have a number of pieces um, featured there. Um, the National Museum of the American Indian has a number of works from the collection. Um, there's a big art exhibition right now at the Art Gallery of Hamilton on the Bay Art Gallery and also the National Gallery called Radical Stitch. The McMichael Gallery in Kleinberg, uh, Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, Kelowna Art Gallery. Uh, is there a catalog? Uh, they go to your site, uh, and then is there a catalog or something? That, uh, Not quite. Like we, we have a book that was produced a few years back, which has about 400 pieces, I think. Yeah. About yeah. 400 pieces, but yeah. the collection itself is close to 5,000. Yeah. Um, not all of the pieces are photographed. Um, so how do people know what they want? Well, if you go to the, the our main website, it does have a list of the artists um, that are part of the collection. So yeah. you can at least see, so recognize some names and kind of make a decision there. It's not the art itself? They can't see the art? No, not the art itself. Yeah, we're, we're trying to do that, but that's a big, long process yeah. to, to yeah. create an online having gallery. Everything photographed and uploaded mm -hmm. and everything, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a process. I think one of the things that is interesting about the Art Center is that we, d you know, we don't have, you know, a... Uh, a catalog from which you you go ah beautiful mm -hmm. it's a very collaborative process um i find that people who want to do an exhibition mm -hmm. they often have an artist in mind or perhaps or a, a theme a theme or okay. maybe even a tribal group in mind or a nation yeah. and they come to us it's and right, yeah. we work together internally and then externally to suggest what works would probably mm -hmm. be best for it okay. and which works are safe to exhibit as well because you know not all works are are you know for lack of a better word healthy enough to go on display or may need different types of frames or protection for the different types of shows so we work very collaboratively to to create uh, 
a selection from yeah. which and then choose. availability to like something might be coming up for loan so it's like mm -hmm. well you can't borrow right now because it's going to be going to this place yeah. but a year from now it'll be available yeah. right. are they like they pay a fee for this right or or or, or is it or, or is the art out on loan or um or well it kind of varies yeah they're like um there will be fees that will be brought to pay the artist if something's on exhibition um but depending upon the gallery we're working with and their budget, like we do try and be flexible and adaptable right. and do what's best for the artist. So yeah. say it goes to a small gallery and they have a limited budget and can't do as much, but yeah. they do want to feature this artist. Well, we'll work with them and say, okay, maybe we can cover the shipping cost to get it to you from there. Um, we'll do things like that if it's, if it's the best thing to do for the artist. Okay. Yeah. Last question. Um, it's about reconciliation. Uh, maybe Eric, you'll start. Um, you know, there's a buzzword going around Canada now. It's called reconciliation, and uh, people have uh, different opinions on it. And, uh, and uh, nothing's wrong. You know, I mean, all the all the, uh, the the words that I've heard about reconciliation are all positive. They're all good. And uh, what are your feelings on this? You know, how can we make this country? How can we reconcile? What does it mean to you? What does the word reconciliation mean to you, Eric? That's that is a tough question. <laughs> I think I think what Canadians can do, and I think we're well positioned to do this in the Arts Center. I think what Canadians can do is obviously collaboration is key. I don't want to sound trite, but one of the things I love about the Arts Center is that so much of the work we do is built on um, relationships with artists mm -hmm. that we cultivate and work hard to earn trust live up to our promises mm -hmm. and be transparent be as honest as we possibly can mm -hmm. and i've seen i've i myself have spoken with artists and it's like meeting a celebrity and sometimes i'm tongue-tied and i realize that they're just human beings who want to be treated normally and and with honesty and and with kindness and they'd love to talk to you and i think the work that we do in the art center talking about you know letting indigenous people lead where they should and where they deserve to and where the settler voice is not needed having the grace to step back and you know know when it's your turn to to speak and participate and know when it's okay to let other people go and it's hard for some people it's hard to let go of your control of a situation it's hard to let go of your understanding of how things should be or how you've been taught they should be mm -hmm. but i think building those relationships and trying to always earn trust and, uh, and show respect. It's all that I can do on an individual level. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm blessed to be introduced to all of these people from different parts of Canada and from different groups. And so I'm learning all the time. Yeah. So I try not to, uh, I try not to speak too certainly on the subject of reconciliation because I'm still learning what it means to, the artists and people that I talk to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how, that's how you learn, listen, and uh, just speak honestly. Good. Well said. Garrison, what do you, what does reconciliation mean to you? Like what, what comes to mind? It's a tough one because I think my answer probably changes, you know, all the time. Um, but I think what Eric was talking about makes a lot of sense and, and, you spoke about letting someone else lead. I think that's kind of a key thing that's always been running through my mind when I think about reconciliation because it's, you know, for a long time, our 
the future for indigenous peoples was disrupted. It was put on hold. It was sidetracked. Right. It was someone else took over and steered us in a completely different direction and that we wanted to go in. So we kind of like lost time where we don't know what could have come. So imagine 400 years of, of us uh, living on this land, what we could have turned that into with the understandings that we had, the connection with nature and, and just the way that we lived our lives, um, what could that have been, you know, after 400 years? What could it have, how could the world have changed? But that was all just suddenly stopped. So to me, recognition is, yeah, okay, now let us do our thing again. Let us decide what our future is going to be. Let us decide how we're going to live upon this land, how we're going to speak, how we're going to address all these things that have been disrupted and, and, um, and set aside. So reconciliation is something that, you know, I don't I don't know if we're ready to use that word at this point in time, because like a lot of people said in the past, you know, we still have to get to the truth first mm -hmm. before we can decide we've reconciled with something. And how do you do reconciliation when a lot of people really don't know the history of indigenous peoples in Canada and in North America and South America? They don't understand what has happened. And there's a lot of people that don't are still in denial of us when we talk about this because it's not in their history books. Right. Um, there's a lot of things that we have to deal with first before we get to that point in time, but we do have to go in that direction. Um, so yeah, it's something that I've been working on within government for probably my entire time, I think in the past 20 years, um, kind of struggling with that. And sometimes, you know, you feel like you're banging your head against the wall because no one's listening to you and no one's hearing what needs to be done or what needs mm -hmm. to be said and not shifting or moving in a different direction, but trying to maintain the status quo. Um, it's very frustrating. It's probably why I've left government so many times. <laughs> I, I've jumped in and out. Yeah. <laughs> four or five times, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's the one thing that I do like about the Indigenous Arts Center is because I think they've been doing reconciliation since they were formed because this was yeah. an Indigenous jury, um, Indigenous people leading the Arts Center. That decision was left to Indigenous peoples. One of the wisest decisions I think that came from that time was whoever was in charge back then realized that, okay, I'm not an Indigenous person. I don't know about Indigenous art. Maybe they should, mm -hmm. should decide um, what is collected and that that's reconciliation right they may not have been anywhere near that frame of mind and what they've done but they, they made that decision so because of that this place has been allowed to grow and develop and become what it what it is within this department yeah. and it's now like they're kind of like merging together as 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 people more are more aware of reconciliation and what needs to be done so the art center can play a big role in saying okay so this is how you should do it. Um, this is what we've been doing for the past 40, 40 years. Let's learn something from this process and yeah. maybe let that trickle through the rest of the oh department. God, 60 some years. 60 years, I'm yeah. Like, huh. Math is not good. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've, like I was seeing that, like someone asked me this question a while back and I was kind of like reflecting upon it. And what I saw was an eyeball so when the art center formed, I mean, the artwork, this is our vision, the way we see the world, the way that we represent it. Right. Uh, we're reflecting upon Canada. We're reflecting upon our history, reflecting on all these things. Right. So then this is now in the department and on their walls because a big part of the art center when it was formed was this is going to, this art is going to decorate the office. And that was a way to, um, to reach the staff and to inform them about indigenous peoples and issues and cultures. Um, We've moved away from that now since then, but but that was the original idea. Mm -hmm. So you have this 
Department of Indian Affairs that is now reflecting upon itself because you have these artists presenting these ideas. It's all over the walls. These concepts are there. These issues are there. And now this suddenly this department has an eye looking at itself, has gained gain some level of consciousness. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But anyhow, when I was just sitting there one day and all of a sudden that kind of image popped in my head yeah. and, and trying to think about it. And you know, so that's why the, the idea of reconciliation in my mind, it shifts all the time because I do think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. Uh, so it can shift depending upon what I'm thinking about at that particular time, yeah. like how we should move this part forward, how do we move this part forward, and on and on and on. But spoken like a true artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's another different uh, way of uh, you know talking about reconciliation. But uh, mm-hmm. you guys are doing a wonderful job, and uh, I want to thank you on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, Roots and Hoots Podcast. I've been talking to Eric Morant and Garrison Garrow from the Indigenous Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you guys for coming out. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Roots and Hoots podcast produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more information on this episode, including show notes, please visit the podcast description. And of course, for more information about the work we do here at the Legacy of Hope Foundation, please visit legacyofhope.ca.